Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning, and um, I just want to apologize ahead of time. My voice is a little bit raspy. I, there's some kind of sickness going around, but so just bear with me. Um, all right. So before we get to the text, I just want to clarify a few things. Um, as the year draws to an end, I've been given the task to preach a sermon that marks the importance of keeping the Word of God central in your lives. Every year, the elders think that it's a fitting way to prepare for the new year by preaching a sermon that encourages the body to dig deeper into their Bibles, because we know that that's where life is found. That's the reason we're starting a one-year church reading plan as well, because there's nothing more important for all of us as Christians than to have a greater understanding of God. And, that we, and we learn of him through this book right here. With that being said, though, as I've been praying about this sermon for some time now, I've decided to go a slightly different route. Rather than this sermon having the main focus be on reading the scripture, this sermon's going to focus in on our hearts. The reason for this is because I believe that the natural disposition of a heart kept for God will result in reading the scriptures and keeping them central in your life in a way that also pleases God. And that's why the heart's going to be our focus today. So with that, let's turn to our text this morning. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. Please turn there with me. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. And I would ask as well that you please stand for the reading of God's word. All right, it says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it will be when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you great and good cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you will eat and be satisfied. Then beware, lest you forget Yahweh, who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You may be seated. Okay. So to begin right off the bat, I'd like to ask this question. What does your life revolve around? If you were to consider every aspect of your life, from work to leisure, what would the answer be? Keep this question in the back of your mind as we go along this morning, because it plays a central role in understanding this text. Before I dive in, though, it's important to understand the context behind this passage. The book of, um, this book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, is the last book of the Pentateuch, which are the books of the Bible that were written by Moses. 
and it could essentially be called a farewell speech from Moses to the people of Israel. It was given during the 40th and last year of Israel's time in the wilderness. They're his final parting words that God is speaking through him that he wants these people to hear. He's telling them how to live a life that's in accord with the commands of the law that were given them so that they'd make their way prosperous and have good success. That's what we see right here in verses 1 through 3. Now this is the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do it in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I am commanding you all the days of your life, and that your days might be prolonged. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it, that it might be well with you, and that you might multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then, one book forward, look at what Joshua says at the beginning of the book of Joshua, in um, chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may um, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way successful, and then you will have pro- um, then you will be prosperous. These words, which Moses and Joshua were speaking to Israel, were given to them so that they could know how to please God. They are heeding the Jews, saying, "This is the straight and narrow path. Follow this path, and you'll live. But stray from this path, and you'll die." It's also important to clarify at the beginning that this text was part of the law given to the Jews during the first covenant. So when it comes to us here this morning, we have to be cautious in how we apply these things to ourselves. We aren't under the law, and we were never in in the covenant that God made with Israel. We're a part of the new covenant that Christ made to the church. Despite that, though, there are aspects of order being taught that what were, of what were being taught to them back then that are just as applicable to us today and that we could glean so much wisdom from. So with that, let's look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Every nation that surrounded Israel at the time of this being written was polytheistic, meaning that they served and worshipped multiple gods of their choosing. And now, here, as God has pulled Israel out of slavery to the nation of Egypt, he's establishing with them that he's the one and only God and that they're to be totally and fully reserved to him. God set them apart. Set them apart, not to be like every other nation which was walking in darkness, but to be a nation that walked in the revelation of his light. These these words in verse 4 unapologetically proclaim that there's only one true God and that that God is Yahweh. The one who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now to Moses and the nation of Israel, is the one and only God. And in saying that Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, it's in no way contradicting the triunity of the Godhead either. It's simply saying that there's only one God, and that God is Yahweh. Verse 4 is a proclamation that there's only one God. And then verse 5 transitioned to the command of what the response to him should be. 
You shall love Yahweh with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Your God, your heart, your soul, your might. These are all personal relational commands. And the three terms, heart, soul, and might, represent a person as a whole. Their, their greatest duty was to love the God who created them. And not just a lip service kind of love. God entered into a covenant with them, and their love was supposed to be covenant love. Similar, similar to how love in a marriage, which is also in a covenant, should look. Yahweh chose to be in a covenant with the nation of Israel. Exodus 24, 7 and 8 says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. He took them in as his own. And now their instruction to his faithfulness was faithfulness in return. He showed extreme mercy to this group of people, not just in creating them, not just in sustaining them, but also in showing a special kind of favor towards them. Favor in delivering them from Egypt and also special favor in choosing them for himself. And the command they were given to this covenant was to love him with all their heart, soul, and might. This was about the outflow of their hearts being for God. That's what, this says, that's what it says right here in verse 6. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's what God ultimately wanted for them, for their hearts to be for him. And the truth is, it's the same with all of us today. God the Father has called you into a new covenant with him through the blood of his son. Jesus' blood was shed on the cross to deliver you from the consequences of sin as well as to take you in as his bride. What do you think a gift like this is worth? Not only in delivering you from everlasting hell, but also making you his greatest possession. As I've considered this question, I've tried to think of the most extreme things that could be done in return for what he's done for us. And I've concluded that nothing that we do could even begin to brush the surface. Despite this, though, he's still given us this amazing gift of grace. We can't do anything to deserve what's been given us. So what does he want then? Just like we see with the nation of Israel, it's about our hearts. He wants hearts that are devoted first and foremost to him. And I'll tell you this. We can fool each other pretty well, but we can't fool God. Uh, Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. Those are some pretty scary words. With that in mind, let me ask you this question. What are your motives in regards to your heart for God? Knowing that God knows every thought that passes through your mind, are you able to say with a pure conscience that your heart is truly his? Or do you honor him with your lips while your hearts are still far from him? It's so important as Christ followers to give constant consideration to the motives behind why you do the things that you do. Is this being done for the glory of God or is this being done for myself? 
If how we live our lives is based upon anything other than God's glory, we will someday have to give an account for that. The scriptures teach us that the things we do that don't proceed out of faith are sin. With this being the case, what would you say the biggest threat is to a heart kept for God? This text makes this clear. Look again at how Moses begins this command to love God. Before the command, he says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. This is a proclamation that's against any form of idolatry, which is always the biggest threat to loving God, serving and worshiping other things besides him. You also see a direct command against this in verses 14 and 15 of this passage, which say, You shall not walk after other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For Yahweh your God in the, um, for Yahweh your God in the midst of you is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. So when applying this text to us here this morning, I don't think we see the same kind of idolatry here in America that was being warned about to these people. But there's another kind of idolatry that's just as damning. Let's turn to the words of Jesus for a second in the book of Matthew. Uh, please turn with me to Matthew 6, 19 through 24. That's Matthew 6, 19 through 24. It reads, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. For you cannot serve God and wealth. Verse 21 again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your treasure? Is your tr if your treasure is in Jesus, he will be glorious to you. If your treasure is in the world, the glory of Jesus will always be dim. I know a common response to this is that you want Jesus to be your treasure, but it's so difficult to live with him as the jewel of your heart. It's difficult to find joy in prayer or reading the word or spending time thinking upon and praising God and then allowing these things to have a central role in your life. I think I know the reason for this. If you can resonate with what I'm saying, I think that this ultimately boils down to there being things in your life which you love too much. Things that have become idols that are hindering the Holy Spirit and thus hindering your love for him. Most of the time, it's hard to recognize what the idols are in our lives because sin loves to haze these things over. That's why we all need accountability and we all need to be in constant prayer asking the Lord to reveal these things to us because we do an awful job by ourselves at diagnosing these things. Here's another helpful tool that we can use to expose idols. What if as a grace from God, he makes it near impossible to pray to him without your heart being pulled elsewhere 
to help you see that there are things in your heart that need to be confessed and put in, a proper, put in their proper place. What if the reason it's difficult to sing songs of praise without your mind wandering is because there are objects in your life that are being held too high? What are these things? I've come to see that when my own love for Christ is hindered or feels clouded in, in these areas, it always comes down to this. Something in my life is being elevated too high. Our flesh desperately wants to defend these things and protect against anything that might risk us having to give them up. But I can confidently tell you that there's nothing better than when these things are surrendered to him, the Holy Spirit isn't being hindered in this area any longer, and as a result, your love for him increases. There's nothing that you'll give up in this life for the sake of our Lord that you'll look back upon with regret. It's so easy to make idols out of so much rubbish. John Calvin put, put it this way, the human heart is an idol factory, churning out new idols like the conveyor belt in a manufacturing plant, rolling out new widgets. We have to, as Christians, put these things to death as soon as we recognize them. Guard your hearts like your life depends on it because it does depend on it. Anything that you esteem too highly within your heart is stealing glory from your king. So keep diligent watch over your hearts. Okay, now we're going to look at verses 7, 8, and 9. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Immediately after this, the instruction for these commands to be on Israel's heart, he follows it up with these three verses, which show in a way what this looks like. If the command to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and might was followed, this would be a result of how they lived. That's what Moses is getting at here. If they truly loved God, their lives would reflect it. So let's, let's consider the beginning, let's first consider the beginning of verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. One of the most important duties given to these people was to diligently t- teach what they learned from God to their children. To teach, the term diligently could also be translated as strain or to persevere. The idea was that it was supposed to be something that their time and energy was given to day in and day out, to train up their children in the way that they should go. It was to pass on the truths that they had learned um, so that their kids would walk the same path. And again, this is specifically about the Israelites teaching their kids the law. But can you see the principles here? If it was important for them to teach their kids the Torah, where do you think it falls on a scale of importance? for us to teach our kids of Christ, especially when you consider the implications behind your children knowing God or rejecting him, eternal life or eternal damnation. Can you think of a better use of your time here on this earth than to pass off the truths of God's word to your children? Here's what one commentator said on this. This commandment is not automatically transferred from one generation to another. Deuteronomy attaches the importance and responsibility of teaching to the family. This educating must be done in a diligent manner. The home is to be the center for conserving and propagating truth. 
Home is where life makes up its mind. Moses understood that the greatness of the nation of Israel depended upon the teaching of the commandments in the home as a nation. Um, as a nation, we need desperately to apply these, this truth to ourselves. A man who had served as a chaplain for many years at a state penitentiary said, out of 1,700 convicts, I found only one who had been brought up in a home where they had family worship. And that man was later found innocent of the crime which he had been charged. End quote. If you raise your kids without using the word of God as the primary means of instruction, it's unrealistic to just hope for the best and expect that they'll magically grow up in the fear of the Lord. As I look back on my own upbringing, what I'm most thankful for out of all the good things my parents did for me is this. They instilled from me from day one that their biggest desire for my life would be that I loved and feared the Lord. Although my education was an important part of my childhood, it always took back, back seat to the instruction of the Lord. I never felt like my parents' primary concern for me was that I'd make it into a good college, get a high-paying job, or have worldly success. I knew that my parents' primary concern was my eternal soul. And they knew that if I sought first God and his righteousness, that everything else I needed would be supplied for me along the way. And I'm here to tell you that that was the greatest gift they gave me. As parents, God calls you to diligently instruct your children in knowing him. This doesn't mean, though, that your kids are promised to walk in the path of righteousness. God is ultimately sovereign over every saved life, but I know that he blesses the endeavors of parents and that there's a lot of fruit to be shown from parents who have put their foot to the plow in this area. There's a proper way to do things as Christians, and we can gain so much wisdom from passages like this. Remember that this world is a bent against the Lord Jesus. And from the moment a child is born, this world is going to be pulling at their attention. And if we as parents don't take this task seriously, then how easily will it be for them to go the way of the world? Sadly, one of the most common things seen today in the evangelical church is how the next generation of kids are walking away from the faith they were raised in, in flocks and hordes. Kids are abandoning the faith of their parents believe in everywhere you turn. This has to make you stop and think that the church has departed from biblical truths about the job of raising your kids. So many people wonder why this is, and at the same time, the concept of the word of God being central um, in the household, or topics like family worship got brought up, and it seems like these are foreign concepts to most believers. You have to see, though, that these things go hand in hand. You can't expect your kids to walk in the faith when it's being neglected in the home. The home needs to be the central place where children see the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit taking place. Kids need to see parents whose lives first and foremost revolve around the Lord. And I want to tell the men in this body that this duty primarily falls upon you to lead in. It's your job to create an environment and time within the home that these things take place. This kind of thing could very well be lacking in your household currently, but it's never too late to reorient your life and make this possible. And I'm here to plead with those within the body to take this duty seriously. And if you don't know where to start, start in something like this, or if you don't feel adequate in the job of raising your kids in the knowledge of the Lord, my reply that would be that for any parent to properly teach these things to your kids, they must first be central in your own lives. As you learn of God, 
take what you're learning and teach them to your kids. That's exactly how this verse flows as well. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. It should dictate the way you teach and instruct. And you shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. It should dictate the conversations of your home and the conversations outside of your home. And when you lie down and when you rise up, it should dictate the meditations of your heart in the morning and evening alike. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. It should dictate the way you use your eyes and the way you use your hands. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Your home should be known by your love for God. What's the main takeaway if you were to step back and consider these three verses as a whole? It's that everything in your life was supposed to be summarized by him. With that in mind, let's again consider the question I asked at the beginning. What does your life revolve around? As Christians, or even as if you're a non-Christian visiting here this morning, I'm here to tell you that your life can only revolve around two things. Either your life will revolve around Christ, or your life will revolve around everything and anything else. A life that revolves around Christ will bring life. A life that revolves around yourself, your career, your family, your toys, or anything else will ultimately bring death. That's a very serious question to consider. What does your life truly revolve around? If you consider the solar system, you know that every planet and star orbits around the sun. When we take that picture and apply it to our own lives, what's in the place of the sun? Is it you or is it the Lord? Part of being a Christian is recognizing that you're in the wrong spot. And then to submit to him and give him the rightful spot that he deserves. That's an essential part of being a Christian. Putting Christ in his rightful spot and submitting to him as Lord. But that's unfortunately rarely taught in churches today. Ask Jesus into your heart and then go on living as the God of your own life. If you're still living this way, where your life revolves around yourself, then please take this seriously. There's only one way to please God in the way we live. One path to keeping our hearts for God. And that's again through making him the core object in which our life revolves around. Consider 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 for a second. Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. We were purchased, and the objective of our lives should be to glorify God. One of the main dangers in all of this, though, is trying to take these principles of how to live and thinking that these things will save you. Raising your kids well, devoting, devoting large portions of your life to reading scripture and praying, constantly talking about God, leading a home group, me preaching this morning, none of these things will save us. You could be more devoted to these things than anyone else alive and be no better than a Pharisee. It's faith in the Lord Jesus that has the power to save. Our motivation for applying these principles to our lives has to come from a heart of faith in Christ or else they're of no good. Think of it kind of like the process of building a campfire. When these things are done with the heart of having faith in Christ, it's like adding wood to the fire. Prayer is like adding wood to the fire. Reading the word, adding wood to the fire. Killing sin in your life, adding wood to the fire. 
meeting with the body of Christ, adding wood to the fire, um, evangelizing, fasting, giving, serving, all these things could be compared to fueling a fire and in the process making it bigger and bigger. They aren't the fire though. Faith in Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is the fire. Trying to do these things apart from faith in Christ is all futile. It's like taking a bunch of wood, putting it in a pile, and then acting like you have a fire when it's just a pile of sticks. That's what a works-based salvation looks like, and that's what the Pharisees were guilty of. They did all these things, and they did them better than most people ever would, and they were still condemned by Jesus. Because it wasn't about keeping their hearts for God, it was all about self-righteousness. Their works meant absolutely nothing before the Lord because it was never about his glory. It was all about glorifying themselves. Look at what Jesus says in regard to this. Please turn again with me to Matthew 23, um, to Matthew again, and this time to chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. That's Matthew 23, 1 through 7. It reads, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they do, um, tell you, do and keep, but do not do according to their deeds. For they are saying things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels of their garment. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. It was all self-righteousness. We have to be so careful as we live a life of righteousness that the motives of our heart are correct. Because as 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Remember that your righteousness only comes from Christ and he needs to be the aim. With your aim set on him, that's where true righteousness will flow. All right, let's look at the last few verses in this text now, which I titled The Warning. Then it will be when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you great and good cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you will eat and be satisfied. Then beware, lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Before I focus on the warning, it would be a bummer not to point out the goodness of God and his sovereignty that we see in this text. First, we know that this came after he rescued the, um, Israel from the Egyptians. Do you think they could have mustered enough strength on their own to free themselves from the captivity they were in? Not only that, though, they wouldn't have wanted to. As you read the Exodus event, you can see all throughout it that they were content to be in the bondage of slavery, and they even asked Moses to leave them alone. Next, he preserved them in the desert. It was him who supplied them with all their food, and it was him who protected them from the surrounding nations. And he did all of this despite their unfaithfulness toward him time and time and time again. 
They had a golden calf crafted as an idol to worship. They grumbled, they complained, they disobeyed, and they constantly doubted God. And yet, he was with them. Despite everything that we read about Israel's rebellion toward God, he still brought his covenant people into the land flowing with milk and honey. And once they were in it, look what he says. He would give them great and good cities which they did not build, houses full of all good things which they did not fill, and hewn cisterns which they did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which they did not plant. It was all God. He did it to display his own glory and faithfulness toward these people, which he had chosen for himself. Talk about an event that reflects our own lives. God brought us out of the bondage of slavery. We could have never delivered ourselves from the shackles of our sin. And the reality is, before Christ convicted our hearts of it, we never would have wanted him to. But Christ did free us. He delivered us from the depths of our sin which reigned over us. Now, as redeemed followers of Christ, we're sojourners here on this earth. Think about all the time since God has done all of this for you that you've still been unfaithful toward him. And yet, he remains faithful toward all those he's in covenant with, whom he calls his bride. And last, God will bring his chosen ones all the way home to be with him. He will give you an inheritance beyond all comprehension. I think it's safe to say that he deserves to be ascribed with all the glory for what's been done in our own lives. Isn't it cool to see the reflection of our own lives in this event? All right, with the goodness of God considered, now let's focus on the warning. Verse 12. Then beware, lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Only two generations after these words were commanded to be kept by the people of Israel, they had already began to abandon him and serve gods made made out of pieces of wood and stone. How tragic and how dumb these people were. But sadly, it's not just this one time that we see people abandoning the one true God for other gods. It's the pattern we've consistently seen all throughout history repeat itself over and over again. Even this country we live in was largely built upon the word of God. And look, only a few hundred years later, and look at where we've ended up. The pattern of history has been what we see in Romans 1.23. People exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We humans are so prone to forget. Think about all that God's done for you and continues to do for you, and then think about how quickly you can throw it out the window for sin or when the smallest trial arises. It's one of the biggest dangers we're all susceptible to, forgetfulness. And this forgetfulness isn't as innocent as it sounds either. I'm sure we've all experienced with children times when they were confronted on something they weren't supposed to do and that their response was that they forgot They knew deep down, though, that what they were doing was disobedient, but they chose to do it anyway, chose to do it anyways. That's called willful forgetfulness, and we're all guilty of it as well. Anytime you choose uh, sin over obedience to the Lord, you're choosing to willfully forget the command you've been given to obey. Fruitless words, gossip, slander, a little lust here and there, a few clicks too far on your devices, loss of temper, the list goes on and on. 
We all know these things are wrong, but anytime we still allow them into our lives, you're choosing love of sin over love of Christ. You're choosing to do the things in which the Lord Jesus suffered and died on the cross for. I think about the man locked up in the cage in the Pilgrim's Progress that when inquired upon, expressed that he plunged so far into the depths of sin after knowing the kindness of the Lord that eventually repentance was denied him. This man was never truly saved, but he still knew all about the grace of God. He knew it, and day after day he chose to trample upon it. Thankfully, God is gracious and slow to anger, and he chooses to show mercy despite our sin. But never take this for granted. Never presume upon the kindness of the Lord. Take the smallest of sins in your life as seriously as they deserve. Because part of where our assurance of salvation comes from is that sin is actively being put to death in our lives. If sin has, still has complete dominion over your life, then this should make you seriously evaluate if you're still in the faith. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fi- a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? It's not the easiest thing to say, but I say it because there would be nothing more tragic than for you to fake your faith all the way to the judgment throne. If you feel like this might be you this morning, then I would urge you to cry out to the Lord and ask him to save you. Ask him to make you born again. Ask him to give you true faith in him. We can so easily forget such a wonderful salvation we have in Christ and begin to set our hearts and affections on the things of this world. So how do we guard against this? What are the best ways to protect against the snare of the devil? Well, look at what Ephesians 6, 13 through 18 says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with, with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and also the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit, and to this end being on, on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. What does this picture paint a picture of? What does this passage paint a picture of? It paints a picture that every part of our lives is to be protected with the armor of God. If we want to protect our hearts for God, then every part of our lives from head to toe is also to be protected. One break in our armor and sin breaks in and goes directly to your heart. And, then it, and it also goes hand in hand with the question I've been asking all morning. What does your life revolve around? These are the things, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, Faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer, and perseverance. These are the things that, 
that mark a life that revolves around God. These are the defining marks of every true Christian. If you structure your life to revolve around God, it's like putting armor on that will naturally be guarding you against so many of the dangers of sin. But if your life isn't structured around God, it's like leaving you naked and bare for sin to ravage you. We can't live like this, Christians. Put on the full armor of God and stand, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Put Christ on the throne of your life where he belongs. Because whether you put him on the throne or not, he does rule over your life. And I can assure you that it's far better for him to rule over you as a friend and father than as an enemy and judge. Don't fall into the lie that so many within our church fall into, that they can be Christians and still live however they want. If Jesus has truly bought you, live like it. Your life is his. You've become a slave to Christ. I won't give a checklist of what it looks like to be a slave of Christ because I recognize that everybody's life is different. But I want you to consider this. When you begin your, um, what do you begin your day thinking about? What are the first thoughts that enter your brain as you wake up in the morning? Are they about how to please God? Are they spent basking in the goodness of your Savior? What about at work or at school? Do you recognize that the chief end of these things should be done for the glory of God? As you work throughout the day, is that your motivation? How about friendships? If you were to consider the friendships that you have, could you say that they're built first and foremost upon him? Your relationship with your spouse and kids? What about how you use your free time? Are these things done with the mindset of glorifying our God? Are your relationships with non-believers marked by actively sharing the gospel with them and pointing them to Christ? What about when you rest your head on your pillow to go to bed at night? This might all sound extreme, but I can assure you with scripture to back me up that this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. Matthew 10, 37-39 says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Being a Christian is about dying. Dying to your old self, which used to reign over you, and taking up the new life which has been given you in Christ and living for his glory. He's your master, and your life is to be marked by him. Okay. So I want to end by asking this question. It's a somewhat scary question, but I think it's extremely valuable. If you were to take the five people who know you most in this life and ask them what they think most defines you based on how you live, what marks your conversations, and where your affections are, what would they say? Do you think that they, that they would confidently say that your life is defined by Christ and Him crucified? If so, praise the Lord. Keep running this race well. If as you examine your life, though, you don't think that this is the case with you, then it's not too late. Put your faith in Christ, and as you trust in him, reorient everything in your life until you can confidently say that this is the case with you. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? He's fully worthy of it, and he's fully deserving of it as well. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you have shown us through Jesus Christ, your Son, knowing that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were fully held captive by these things, and also we were enemies of you. We loved the things of the world. We loved ourselves. We made ourselves our own gods, that you showed grace on us. You showed us mercy when we were so undeserving. Thank you, Lord, that through faith in Christ, you have made us new creations. You have given us an inheritance beyond all comprehension. I pray, Lord, for this body at Lakewood Bible Chapel. I pray each one here this morning would take the truths that they know and apply them to their lives, reorient their lives to live for Christ and Christ alone. I pray that you would help each one of us to see just how quickly this life will be over. It's like a breath that is here and gone so quickly, Lord. Help them to see that judgment is coming, that they will either be condemned for their sins or through faith in Christ, they can stand as free, they can stand as innocent because Christ took their sin. Lord, we need your grace and we ask for it this morning and praise you that you are worthy of all praise. In Jesus' name, amen.